House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. David Martino is here. I am here. Yeah. Ready to, yeah, ready to rock. Yeah, ready to rock. Yeah, ready to rock. Yeah, the heavy metal guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, good, good, good. Yeah. So um, now it's been a fun week so far, and we're going to continue that. That's good right. times, good times, nothing but good times. Um, so now today we have got a writer that's written a lot of books, and he covers a lot of areas, uh, everything from golden retriever mysteries to uh, a gay adventure, mystery, romance, police procedurals. It's just all in one, and one and all. Um, so, Mr. Neil Plaxy, thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Neil, so how did how did this all start for you? I mean, it looks like you've got uh, a ton of books out here, like even more than me. My God, people call me uh, prolific. So what what's going on? How did it start for you? Why did you get into writing? I think, uh, like a lot of authors, I started writing as a kid. I actually um, had access to one of those newspaper databases a few years ago and Googled my name, and I found a story that I had written that made no sense at all um, that was in the local newspaper when I was seven. But I really decided when I was 16 that I wanted to be a writer, um, majored in English in college, but of course... Um, back in those days, um, before there were computers, uh, it was not a good career path. So I went on to uh, get an MBA and work in a bunch of different fields. Uh, then I landed here in South Florida in 1986 and began taking uh, graduate-level classes in an MFA program, a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, from Florida International University which was very close to my home and run by some really terrific authors. And that's really when I began to write seriously and, um, and eventually, uh, you know, kept working and working. And my first book came out in 2009. And that was um, uh, both a police procedural set in Honolulu um, with a, a homicide detective um, and also a gay coming out novel. So the the um, detective gets dragged out of the closet uh, during a big case. Um, and that was my introduction to the world of publishing. What gave you the confidence to decide to publish that, actually? Because when you're writing and you're doing other jobs and stuff, what was it that kind of made you go, well, why not, and get it out there? You know, I, I think it was seeing the examples of my classmates in the MFA program and being exposed to authors and publishers. And it's funny because I had an agent in New York who was representing the book, and she came back to me and said, you know, I've tried all the people that I know in, the, in publishing who would publish this book, and I can't find anybody. So why don't you go ahead and write something else? And then I went to the Miami Book Fair International. It's a huge, you know, one of the largest book fairs in the country, and there was a guy there who was um, pushing a book he had edited of called Rebel Yell about gay men in the South, stories of gay men in the South. And I was like, I'm not really interested in this, but 
I really should go just to make connections, and you never know what you're going to hear. And at the end of his presentation, um, I raised my hand and asked, you know, my agent has said there isn't much market for gay mysteries these days. Do you agree with that? And he said, well, actually, I'm uh, working as an editor for a small publisher, and we've just hired a sub-editor to work specifically on gay genre books, mystery, horror, romance. And I said, can I have your card? And he gave it to me, and the rest is history. I submitted the book, and it turns out my editor had already submitted the book to that publisher and been rejected because they hadn't yet changed their focus. And so I was able to get in when, you know, they were just deciding we're going to start this new imprint. Um, of course, the imprint failed, and I was very fortunate to get that book picked up by another publisher called Allison Books, who were at that time the biggest publisher of gay and lesbian uh, literature. And uh, I was able to do a couple of books with them. Um, and then that's when the ebook revolution came around. And that really changed everything for me. Yeah. Yeah. It gives you a, a lot more power over what you're doing, right? And, and your books. Absol absolutely. You know, and for somebody like me, and, you know, must be like you if you're as prolific as I am, um, the traditional publishing model of, okay, we'll take one book from this author for a, you know, and it'll take us maybe two years from the time we accept the book until it goes through editing, um, mark, you know, pre-book marketing, and then comes out. And I said, I don't want to wait two years for books. Um, and whereas, you know, in e-publishing today, I could finish the book today, of course, after having the editor review it and had multiple drafts done, had my beta readers look for, you know, any, you know, small mistakes that I've made. And I can hit a button and have it available on Amazon today. Right. So that's really good for somebody like me who writes a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it gives you that advantage. I still use publishers and I do self-publishing, so I kind of go back and forth. Because, yeah, you're right. The publisher doesn't want to take on more than one one book at a time from you, usually. And, you know, the other thing that I have noticed, and this is publishers in general, I'm sure there are some who do a better job, they really don't do a lot of marketing for you. They expect you to do the marketing. And if I'm going to give up a, a huge percentage of my royalties, that first book, Mahu, my royalty percentage was 7%. Right. <laughs> um if I'm going to give up 93% of my money, I want you to do something for it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I've found that by outsourcing, by I have a terrific cover designer, I have a terrific editor who I had worked with in, you know, when he was working for a New York publisher, he had edited a book of mine. I have a great uh, assistant who does a lot of marketing for me. So I have my minions as I like to say, um, and they help me get the books out, you know, in a great way that, that really satisfies the de desires of my readers. I had a new book that came out February 14th, and as of yesterday, I had nine five-star ratings on Amazon for it, and I already had readers saying, when are we going to see the next in the series? I'm like, that took me three months to write, and you read it in a day. 
so when you're doing it, when you have a series like that, I, I'm, I'm imagining, or you're talking about the Lord and the Frenchman, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's book two. So when you're talking about uh, a series, so you've got two books already, um, and you get um, readers and fans and whatever t- telling you about what they liked and don't like, or I like this character, you know, you get all that stuff. Do you find that when you go to book three, um, or the next book in the series and another series that you start to write to kind of to, to please or towards the people that read and give you reviews? I like to think that I am writing what I want and that therefore that's what the readers are responding to. Um, and I can give you a good example of that with my Golden Retriever Mysteries. The basic um, impetus for those books was my own Golden Retriever, who I just fell in love with. And he was my constant companion. He had a lot of funny quirks. And I said, you know, I really want to write a dog, write a book which has a dog as a primary character. And there was an author named Lillian Jackson Braun who had written a whole series of books that began with The Cat Who. And in those, the cats provided clues to the human for, um, for the, to solve the case. So the cat might knock over a book um, that would provide a clue. Um, you know, the cats would run around and do something. So I said, I could do that with a dog. Um, and I use that kind of as my model. And now people really have responded. The book, I mean, I'm book 15 now. People have responded to that. They love the dog and they right. want more of the dog. And that's um, one of the things that my editor always says you know, after uh, after I have done a couple drafts and submitted to him, he'll come back and, you know, one of his comments is usually, any place you can add more Rochester, I think will be great. That's what your readers love. And so, you know, so I'm doing that, writing about the dog, because I love the dog. I love my current dogs. I say to people, I research these books. I spend hours a day researching these books, walking my dogs, feeding my dogs, playing with my dogs, because they give me the inspiration for things that my fictional dog can do. Golden Retrievers have big, floofy tail, always knocking stuff over. They're nosy. They're always sticking their noses into things. So just by watching them, I get a lot of inspiration, and then that's what the readers react to. Do you, well, do you write from an animal's point of view, like from their oh, mindset? No, I don't. No. They don't talk. Sorry, no. Well, <laughs> um, but I do. You know, I do think. You know, there's a there's a basic conceit, and it is a suspension of disbelief. So. Is the human the one who is really solving the crime? Or is the dog doing things, you know, scratching at an article in the newspaper, for example, knocking over a particular, you know, a book of wedding photographs, banging up against a a framed diploma? Is the dog really saying, oh, the clue is here, human, look for it? Or is the human just observing the dog and then riffing off of that? Oh, Diploma, graduation, classmates. Oh, I need to talk to one of my classmates. Right. Yeah, you know, that's the kind of thing. So it's it's up to the reader to say, do they think the dog's really giving the clues? And I like to have the dog do reasonable dog things. You know, he's not going to bark out the you know the name of the suspect in Morse code. <laughs> well, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> but. You know, 
and he's he's also I, I love having places that I can take the dog out to the crime scene, and so he'll sniff around and nose something that maybe the original crime scene investigators missed, or you know that will turn out to be a clue that. He's just a dog. He's just, you know, sniffing and digging and rolling around. Right. Well, and well, people like dogs better, too, right? You know, oh, yeah. dogs are much nicer than humans. Well, and there's a, a, a conceit in writing crime fiction. You can do whatever you want to a human. You can even kill a child, but you cannot kill the dog. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. Why do you think readers like uh, to, to read about dogs and other animals solving crimes? You know, I think readers, particularly of, you know, of crime fiction, they want to see a world restored. They want to see an order restored, okay? You know, something happens, the world is, the world's going along fine, something happens to disrupt that, um, to cause a breach in society. And we hope that by the end of the book, or we believe that by the end of the book, the detective will have brought society back into balance again. And just adding the the dog in, or the cat, or um, you know what, whoever um, my my friend Clea Simon has a, a ferret. Um, now now the, her character can communicate with the ferret, and the ferret has a very dark, angsty personality. <laughs> so I think we just enjoy seeing the animals, and that adds to the pleasure of solving the crime. Is there something you get out of? writing a book like this, let's say with the cozy dog mystery, as compared to your other books? You know, I, I kind of think it's like, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to eat the same thing every day or drink the same thing every day, although I do, you know, tend to have my habits. So it's nice to switch back and forth um, from a lighter, you know, and certainly in the Golden Retriever books, people die. Good people, bad people, you know, there's crimes committed. But they generally take a much lighter tone than some of my other books, particularly the ones with gay protagonists, where, you know, the protagonist may be fighting against society or fighting against disapproval from somebody in a way that, you know, the guy in his golden just aren't. So sometimes the, the gay books have a deeper you know, maybe more angsty um, situation going on. That kind of deep emotional connection can be very valid for readers just as much as reading something that's light and funny. So I try and balance the two out, you know, in my own brain. Do you find that um, your characters, the, the, the ones you've created for, let's say, both types of books, do you find them comparable when you write them, or do you have the same experience with your characters when you develop them? That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, the, I, I, can, I think that as a writer, you take bits and pieces of your own experience, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're writing. When I'm writing the Golden Retriever books, it's, you know, more like me having fun with my dog. And then I will, you know, kind of switch off into a, a more angsty place where I'm, you know, drawing down a little deeper and how does this really make me feel? And, you know, the, um, the book that I have coming out or the, the last book in the Mahu series, the most recent book was called Unruly Son. And it's about a woman with a neurodivergent teenage son. And I have never, you know, I've never had a child. 
I have never had intimate contact with somebody who was like that, who had those kind of behavioral issues. But, you know, the more that I dig down, it's about a mother and a son. Okay, well, I was a son. I had a mother. You know, how can you, you know, how can you relate? How can I find bits and pieces of my own lived experience to add emotional depth to those characters? Right, because we're all human, and it all kind of carries over. Are, are you the type of writer that can hear your characters? Do, do you have an inner monologue? Is that how you create dialogue, or do, do you find some other way? Um, quite often. Um, you know, I have a great example of this. I was, um, I had written maybe six books in the Mahu series, I kind of thought I was done. I had gotten him to a place um, where I was happy with him. And again, I was on my way to a writer's, um, a mystery writer's convention called BoucherCon, which was in St. Louis, Missouri that year. And I was on this crowded train with my bags, you know, just trying to get from the airport to the hotel. And the character started talking to me and like, you know, no, I, you know, I, and it was something like, I know I shouldn't feel this way, but I just do. And then he kept talking. Um, and I think, I don't remember what it was, what it was. Um, maybe it was marriage. You know, I know I shouldn't feel, you know, like uh, marriage is something that everybody has to do, you know, because we're gay, we can have other traditions, we have other, can have other situations in our lives. And I was like, oh, just shut up until I can get to the hotel and start writing this down. Because I'm standing in the middle of a subway car juggling bags. And, uh, you know, I couldn't just start typing, you know, and that told me that I wasn't done with that series. Um, and the characters continued to talk to me for another um, you know, eight or seven or eight books at this point. Um, but um, I think I was saying that um, sometimes when I get into the zone and I'm just really focused on writing, the words just keep flowing. It's almost like automatic dictation. Yeah, but do, do, do you end up having blackouts and waking up with shovels in your hand? Or <laughs> you didn't know where you were, and all of a sudden it's like, well, I don't know what happened. Is um, it live or Memorex? Like, which was it, you know? You know, so far I haven't been tempted, you know, to actually carry out any of the nefarious deeds that I've come up with for characters, um, although I have been tempted. Well, yeah, and that brings me to when you have a bad character, when you have someone in, in, the, char in, the, in the story that is... Um, just awful, you know, and they do bad things and they're, you know, they're there to be the bad person, I guess, in a sense. How do you write that character? Do you write them from a point of view of of um, explaining why they do things or do you not even go that deep? And, and do you have issues or do you have any problems writing an evil character? I, I believe in the dictum that every person is the hero of his own story. So even the bad characters have a reason for doing what they're doing. Uh, they have a motivation. Um, and so if you can show that so that people understand why this guy, you know, likes dark sexual practices or what motivated this guy to kill someone else, then you're, you're showing their humanity. And that, that's something that everybody can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then they, then they can see, cause quite often the bad person, depending on how, how, 
what the story is, but quite often they're just people that um, they believe what they're doing is right or for a good reason, and um, it's sometimes and they and they they're doing it for their own reasons because they are moving their story forward. Um, and that was something that I think I learned early on in my writing classes is you can't bring a character on stage just to do what you want them to do. Each character has his or her own trajectory. And the story is where the bad guy's trajectory intersects with the good guy's. And, you know, you have to remember that that person, the bad guy, is still going off in his own direction until he or she gets stopped by the protagonist. So they're not there just to, you know, provide relief or just to, you know, walk on, oh, I'm going to walk on, kill this person, and then walk away. You know, they have a reason for doing what they did, and they're going to go off and do, you know, what's right for them next. So what comes first for you? Is it the character, the story, or the setting? Really good question. At this point, mostly, because I'm writing mostly in series, it is the characters. And so I'm thinking, what can, you know, Steve and Rochester get involved in next? What kind of a, what kind of a case can I find that interests me, um, that often maybe takes cues from what's going on in the world around me? Um, I've, you know, written about Bitcoin crimes, for example. But then, you know, I started the two years ago, I wrote a gay romance um, set in Victorian times. And I wrote that because I had been reading so many books like that and loved them and said, ooh, I want to try my hand at this and see if I can do this. So in that case, it was kind of the time and the setting that came first, and then I started to look for who are the characters, what does somebody want, um, what's getting in their way, who can they fall in love with, that kind of stuff, and then start fleshing out the characters to fit the time and the situation. Well, I'm wondering, you know, you talk about how your characters speak to you, and um, especially in the most inopportune moments and I've, I've had that myself I've even heard narration in my head when I was in the shower and then you're like you know how do I get out of the shower and, uh, without without breaking my neck and, and and write this down but I was wondering do your characters ever surprise you do they kind of you know even take the plot off the rails so that it makes it harder for you to get back on track for uh, for, for 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 the ending that maybe you're hoping for that's an interesting question because Normally, the way that I write is um, in th is I do sort of minimal plotting in thirds. So I will start out with, okay, I know what the first plot point is going to be about a third of the way in. And, and I often don't know the ending. I often don't know who did it or how, how or why. I'll just come up with an idea. The most recent... Um, book that I just finished for the Golden Retrievers, which will come out in the next couple months, is called Dog of Thieves. And it was inspired because um, we're having a controversy in my gated community over the removal of trees, many of which are sticking their roots out and disrupting the street and disrupting people's driveways and so on. And so I just thought, well, what if the guy who they signed, the contractor that they hired defaulted and ran away with their $100,000. Well, Steve and Rochester are going to 
you know, get on the, you know, get on the track of him. And then I had a, a totally different thief plot. And I'm like, how am I going to work these two together? You know, how is this going to have a satisfying resolution? And in those cases, the ideas just kind of came up to me. And sometimes you're right, a character does walk on stage who I have not expected to be there, who I don't know. And then I have to sit down and figure out, who are you? What do you want? How do you fit into this plot? And sometimes I have to just drop them out. You know, one of the conceits of my story with um, Steve in Rochester, the guy in the Golden, is that his ex-wife, when they were married, had two miscarriages. And that really upset him, the loss of these unborn children, and set him off on a, a, a difficult path. Um, which ended up with him um, doing some computer hacking and ending up in prison for a year. And, you know, and part of the, the arc of the series has been him learning to love again, learning to, you know, willing to give out his love, and this first of all to the dog, then to the new girlfriend. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if he turns out to have a child? And I wrote, I would say, 30 or 40 pages about... Um, him being on his, you know, uh, post-college backpacking trip to Europe and meeting a woman, and they had a one-night stand, and um, he never heard anything more of her again. And now, 20-some years later, a girl shows up and says, I think you're my dad. And, you know, like a really interesting thing, but I eventually I said, you know what, the heart of his character is this frustration at not having been able to be a parent. Bringing this young woman in would change the whole dynamic. And so I cut it out. She's somewhere else. Maybe she'll come back. Who knows? Yeah, but the question is, did he get raped in prison? No. <laughs> I have tried to avoid that. Um, you know, white-collar crimes, um, a lot of the guys that he was in prison with were similar to him. You know, as opposed to him having gone into a, a hardcore prison. Okay. And I haven't, I have to say, I haven't really researched prison conditions for white color criminals in California. How do you get into your research or what do you decide to do for each book? Like how much, how much time does that take for you? Sometimes it takes a lot. Um, you know, certainly for the, the historical romances, uh, sometimes I'll be ready to move the character from point A to point B. And I'll have to stop and go research. What kind of carriage would he be in? Would it was a horse-drawn carriage? Was it? Did they have trains then? You know, when did the trains run? And I can really fall down a rabbit hole with that. A lot of times, I pick things that I'm already kind of interested in, and so I already know something about. In um, Dog of Thieves, the other plot is so I went to the University of Pennsylvania as an undergraduate and I get all their alumni news and one day I read an article that um, somebody from the University Museum was working with someone from the university's working dog center which trains dogs to sniff out cancer to you know help an epileptic child prevent seizures or know that seizures are coming as well as um, sniffing drugs doing search and rescue and so on. And they said um, there had been an increase in traffic of small artifacts from the Fertile Crescent, the area of like particularly Syria, Lebanon, um, where they'd had a lot of civil wars. 
and people didn't have money, you know, for their basic living, so they were raiding tombs and museums. And this professor wondered if you could train a dog um, from scents of items in the museum to then be able to go out and sniff people's luggage on flights arriving from, you know, the Mideast, Middle East. And, of course, that, you know, ticked all my buttons. Ooh, crime, dogs, interesting. So, you know, I was able to construct a plot where the dog comes out to the place where Steve works uh, to do a demo and discovers some items that had been planted there, stowed there by thieves a few years before. So, you know, yeah, I had to go figure out what kind of items they were. I had to do a lot of research on that. But I also just know a lot about dogs and sniffing. And, you know, I've done some of that research before and search and rescue dogs. Well, do you need to organize your research? And do you have to worry about continuity in your series? Or is that something that um, you can, you don't really have to look at? If so, how do you, how do you organize uh, all the information and the continuity and uh, the characters within your books? I'm... I have gradually had to um, put together series Bibles for the longer-running series. You know, who are all of these characters? Um, so that if um, I had a, a realtor in book one, and now in book five, and that realtor was a friend of a friend, now in book five I need a realtor, I'm going to go back and look for what was that person's name? And, you know, what, was, what did she look like? What descriptions did I use back then so that I can um, continue with that? Um, I periodically, I was not very good at fact-checking and cross-referencing for my first few books. And every now and then I would get an email from a reader um, that, uh, you know, I made a big deal in, let's say, book 10 over... Steve's girlfriend's mother dying. And it was a, you know, it was part of a much larger theme over death, of course, because it's a mystery novel. And so then I had a reader email me and say, oh, you killed her mother off in book five. <laughs> and, you know, this is one of the lovely things about self-publishing. I went back to book five. I saw that it was really an offhand remark, like, Oh, Lily had been very upset when her mother died, but it, and it had taken her several months to get over it. And that was really it. So I just cut that line <laughs> and republished the book um, so that I could avoid that continuity problem. I also, I did a dumb thing. You know, you're always trying different stuff in different books. And I, I grew up um, with lots of immigrant grandparents, great aunts and great uncles, and you'd always hear about people whose names were changed at the border. I thought, oh, I'm going to do that. I wrote a book that was Rochester discovers a bone in a sneaker, and it turns out to be a um, somebody who was a draft evader um, in Vietnam, and he was on his way to Canada and got forgotten about in a in a locked room, basically. And if you recall the actress who was skiing and she hit her head and she was fine, then she went back to the hotel and died a few hours later. Right. Richardson. Yes. I used that 
plot. The guy was out and about, hit his head, went back to hide in the room, and then died. And when he didn't come out of the room, they just assumed he'd gone off on his own. So the guy who was with him did cross the border into Canada, and they made a mistake on his, you know, the person who was handwriting his name made a mistake. And he chose the new spelling of the name in Canada. And that just confused the hell out of readers. Wait, sometimes he's this name and sometimes he's that name? And obviously I did not do a very good job of, you know, clarifying that. But I was like, and, and, and readers were like, oh, you made a mistake. Sometimes he's this name and sometimes he's that name. And I keep having to respond, thank you so much for your email and your careful reading. <laughs> However, you know, I really did intend for him to have two names. Yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of what goes on nowadays. That's the changing world of social media. Well, and I love this opportunity to be in contact with readers. People send me pictures of their dogs, which I think is just adorable. Um, and I'm, you know, I post dog-related stuff on Facebook and on Instagram, and people respond and share it. And so, you know, I, I feel like writing is this solitary thing where, you know, I'm locked up in my room typing, but at the same time, I can have these relationships with people um, all around the world. When you're putting together these books, do you have um, a subtext or something you want people to get out of the book after they read it that's, let's say, outside or below the uh, actual entertainment itself? I do. And, for example, the, the, the Mahu book, Unruly Son, there's a lot of subtext about my hero and his relationship with his parents as someone's son. He has um, fathered children. Um, he and his he and his partner um, donated sperm to a lesbian couple, and so the couple live up the street, and they're raising the kids, and the two dads, you know, spend a lot of time with them. So there is a lot of kind of parenting subtext going on um, underneath the main plot, which is, you know, how did this woman die? There's some meaning in that. Uh, what about for yourself when you finish a book like that? How do you think it changes you? You know, I think often I am um, brought more in touch with my own feelings by having to um, dig through, you know, this character's relationship with his father. Um, it's very funny to me. I'm watching a program on the BBC called The Repair Shop in which people bring in their family heirlooms and a bunch of people in a barn in England repair them. And I'm sitting there watching, and I can just hear my father in my head going, oh, I would never think of using a tool like that for that purpose. Or, oh, I used to have a saw like that. Don't you remember? And, you know, and so, like, that, that you know, brings me in touch with him. And I think the same thing is happening when I'm writing. If I'm writing about a character, writing about, you know, say, Steve from the Golden Retriever Mysteries, his relationship with his father, um, it's making me remember my own dad and thinking of him. So what makes a good book for you? And, you know, um, one of the first things that I learned when I went to graduate school was that a story is about somebody who wants something and what stands in his or her way and how they eventually achieve that. 
So a book that does something like that for me makes me happy. I, you know, I see a character who I relate to, who I enjoy. Maybe I like their voice. Um, maybe I'm, I just connect with them because of age, sexuality, religion, you know, area of origin, any of that sort of stuff. If I can connect with that character um, and then see them through some dramatic action to a positive resolution, I'm happy as a reader. And therefore, that's the kind of experience I want to give, you know, in my own books. What do you think that, what's your, what's your favorite part of, uh, of writing? How's that? Hitting the publish button. <laughs> <laughs> Being done. Um, no, no, I actually think the part that I'm doing right now where I'm thinking about um, what is the plot of this next book? What's going to happen and being open to inspiration. That's the really, that's a really fun part. But at, at the same time, it's really fun too. Um, after I get my editor's comments back on a book, he'll point out things that I put in there unthinkingly or unknowingly. Like, you know, did you realize there's a, there's a theme of X running through this story? I'm like, oh. I didn't see that. That's interesting. And then, then at that point, how can I go through and, with minor changes, amplify that? You know, those kinds of places are all fun. I'll tell you my least favorite part. I was just going to ask. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think all writers have certain ticks that they use. So I tend to use the word really a lot. And I tend to use the phrase a lot, often. Um, and so uh, after I have finished, you know, say maybe the second draft of a book, I'll sit down with search and replace and say, okay, tell me how many times I've used the word really. And, oh, there's 89 of them. <laughs> really a lot. And I have to go back and look at each one and say, is this in, if this is in dialogue and the character saying, I waited a really long time for you, that's okay. But if the narrator is saying, I waited a really long time for her to show up, well, that's kind of vague. Can I go back and be more specific? I kept looking at my watch. I realized it had been a half an hour, that kind of stuff. Or, and I just realized another thing that I realized, one of the things that is a hot topic or was a hot topic recently was deep point of view. And deep point of view means you're really in the character's point of view as you are, as you, as you're reading and things like, I realized it had been a long time, take you one step out. If you were to say it had been a long time, that's more directly focused on what the character is thinking and saying. And that ability to go deeper into the person's point of view so that you're not it's not a narrator telling you things. It's the character experiencing things. Um, so I, I, tend, I look for those things, too. How can I get rid of those ticks? And how can I deepen the point of view by getting, I thought about it for a while. You know, get rid of that kind of stuff. And that's just really tedious. Really easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, so now, social media. Uh, where where do people find 
Neil? You know, do you have like uh, what book? Um, I am most I'm most active on um, Facebook and Instagram, all under my own name, Neil Plaxy. Um, my website. Uh, I did buy neilplaxy.com, but because my name is so easily misspelled, um, I just use the website Mahu Books, M-A-H-U Books, because um, I have spent my life um, explaining how to pronounce and spell my last name. Uh, when my grandfather, paternal grandfather, and his 11 siblings came to the United States, um, there's a, a letter K, there's a letter S in the Russian alphabet, there's a letter C in the Russian alphabet, but there's no letter X. So you might often see the name Alexander as A-L-E-K-S-A-N-D-E-R. Um, so my grandfather just transliterated P-L-A-K-C-Y, not realizing that everyone in the English-speaking world automatically puts the C before the K. So I did, it was really interesting when they were, um, there were photographs um, along with the news story of McDonald's closing in Russia. And I saw the, um, the Cyrillic logo for McDonald's and it ends in the letter C. Ah, I see that. <laughs> you should change your name to Smith. You know, I thought about, I, I had a, a kind of nom de porn. Um, I first began publishing erotic fiction, and I used a different name for that. Um, uh, and I kind of thought, oh, do I really want to go? You know, I, I guess I didn't realize when I started I was going to have such a long career. When you publish your first book, you often think, oh, that's it. You know, that was my book. And so, you know, now I'm, you know, 50 books in, and I'm going to conferences, and I'm, you know, going online and social media and stuff and constantly having to spell my name. Well, you know, could be worse. They're worse things. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Well, of course, okay, now we'll have all that up on our, our, our website as well so people can find you with one click. It'd be easy. Do you ever go back to your old work and kind of reread it and think about redoing some of it? I have. So, you know, I got the rights back to a number of books in the past, you know, had had books published professionally, and I got the rights back. And then when I was ready to self-publish those, I did go through and read every book again, just to make sure that the publisher hadn't overlooked errors, that I hadn't, you know, you get a different feel for books when you read the series of six in a row. And I know that from my own experience as a reader. Um, discovering an author who I fell in love with and I needed to go read the next five or six books. And I realized, oh, he's used the same phrase to describe this character in six books. Uh, so I wanted to try and avoid that kind of stuff. Generally speaking, when I read through it, I'm happy. You know, I'm like, oh, this is better than I expected. You know, I like this. No, I, I know the feeling. A lot of times people will complain about that. Some of my first books, but I'm, they sell well and I'm really embarrassed by them. You know, I think I was lucky in that my publishing career started relatively late in my life, and I had already worked out a lot of those, you know, adolescent imitations. Um, I can remember reading Lolita and then trying to write in that, you know, that very arch style for a while. And, and that was a problem for me as a younger writer. I would read something that had a great 
style to it, and suddenly I'd find that my own writing was in that style. But fortunately, I didn't start publishing until I really had my own voice down. And I think that's why, you know, those book, that first book got published, because I really had my voice down at that point. That, that makes all the difference to, to find your voice. And I think I was kind of in the middle of it actually. So, because I started later too. I wasn't a young kid like uh, Dave there. Dave's been publishing <laughs> since he was six. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> wow. Uh, it's been a really interesting conversation and everything. Oh, I, I was going to ask about your reviews. Do you, do you follow reviews? Or are you interested in reviews or do you stay away from that? So, first of all, I noticed something really interesting in the last couple of months. Um, Amazon must have a way um, of uh, when you finish a book, you can just put a rating in without doing the full review. And so suddenly I noticed, wow, I've got seven star ratings and zero written reviews. I look at reviews sometimes when I need a quote for a, you know, for a piece of publicity. Um, and I'll go back and see, did I get reviewed in a publication? If not, was there some Amazon reviewer who gave it five stars and said something really wonderful? Um, and so I'll look for that. Um, I had a really exper interesting experience with reviews in the first of those Victorian romances. There is a rape scene, which is recounted from the past. And... Um, you know, and it's relatively explicit, not, you know, completely porn explicit. Um, and then by the end of the book, the character meets up yeah. with the person who was not the rapist, but was the facilitator, let's say. Um, and, you know, he, he forgives him. You know, you were in tough situations, so was I, blah, blah, blah. And I had a reviewer who just ripped me a new one for that and swore she would never read anything I wrote again, blah, 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 blah. And that really made me go back and think, did that character really forgive this person? And I said, you know what? I don't think so. And I went back and made that change in the book and republished. But but then there's also the ones that complain. I know, like, even in, in Dog We Trust, there was, number one, people that were, if you're Christian, don't read this and all that, right? So you get that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think now that there are more books in the series, people walk into them knowing what they're going to get. And so... You know, um, and so, and if you are, if you did indeed read a couple of reviews and you saw what this is about, then, you know, go forward. I did have, um, there is a, there's a gay couple who are sub-characters, background characters in the Golden Retriever books. And at one point, they came up to the fore for a little yeah. bit. And somebody who read that, who, you know, some re reader didn't like that. And I was like, tough, you know? Because I, I have a mission, if you want to say, and the mission is to normalize gay life for readers. And whether I do that in a more overt way in the Mahu books where, you know, we have a character who comes out of the closet, starts to make friends, falls in love, ends up in a relationship, you know, adopts a dog, fosters a kid, then has their own biological kids, 
you know, that whole series, um, as, a, as well as, oh, I have these minor characters in the Golden Retriever books who are just going about their business, and they happen to be gay. And if you don't like that, or you don't like the fact that, you know, I have Jewish characters, then these books are not for you. Move on. There you have it. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Well, thank you very much. This is fun. Um, we'll have everything up on the website, like I said. And uh, thank you, Neil S. Laxey. Great. Yeah, you asked some real questions that made me think. Thanks, Neil. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is here production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.